This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Wathen, as always, and today I'm here with uh, the one and only Phil Sturgeon. How's it going, dude? Hey man, not too bad. How are you? Good. So, uh, I mean, you're a really active community member in a lot of places doing lots of different things, so I think we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about, but maybe the first thing would just be if you could just introduce yourself and kind of explain you know, what you've been up to. And uh, I know you started a new job recently. Uh, maybe talk about what you're doing there. And uh, yeah, we'll just see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, I celebrated six months at Ride uh, on the weekend. And that's, it's a pretty f- cool job. They've got us making an API for, it's a carpooling company, basically. So we're going to try and take as many cars off the road as we can by getting people to, to drive together, um, which I don't imagine is going to be very popular in New York because everyone takes the train. But hey, I'm writing a bunch of Ruby and a little bit of Go, which is fun because the two are wildly different. And I've usually got one open on a, you know, two screens, two different programming languages, two different editors. It's very crazy stuff. But uh, yeah, writing a whole bunch of new code and living here in New York, which is not where I'm from, as you can probably tell from my accent. (laughs) Awesome. So uh, you say you're writing a lot of Ruby and a lot of Go. How does that kind of split up? Are you writing Go and Ruby for the, the same like purpose or are they for totally different parts of the application or what are you using those things for? Uh, it's mostly, it's not so much for the benefits of the languages. It's um, the API itself, the kind of big central API was going to be written in Ruby, mostly because we've got a lot of Ruby developers in the company yeah. and that, that decision was made before, before I got there. Otherwise it might've been PHP, but when it comes to building a, an API, it's pretty rare that the language that you're using to build the API matters all that much. As long as you have, um, especially for like an early prototype version where you're not expecting a huge amount of traffic. So um, Rails was a very good choice for that, specifically because one of our um, employees works on contributing to the Rails core. And they've been working on some cool new functionality for Rails 4.2, which is Rails API. So we're using that Rails API stuff to build ours. And it's actually, it's actually pretty cool. Um, the Go came into play because I wanted to... We needed some autocomplete functionality to like look up addresses and vehicles and things like that. And um, it's just a thin wrap around Elasticsearch or making requests to the Google API. And they wanted to put that into the, the REST API, into the central API. And it just felt like a weird kind of hacky crowbar thing to do. Plus, I didn't really like the overhead of having the entire Rails framework sitting there for something that had to be insanely quick, like just responding with plucking things out of Elasticsearch. So I'm using Go for that. And it's... It, it's incredibly fast. It's like 12 millisecond response times. That's awesome. So is that like inside your API as far as looking at it from the outside or did you set up like, you know, it's a completely different endpoint. The consumer kind of knows that, you know, I'm auto-completing from this other kind of microservice sort of thing. It's not just, okay. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's just a little microservice that we've got on a different subdomain and people talk directly to it. So the iPhone app and the web app, they both look at that and yeah, it's just super fast. How do you find building APIs in Rails compared to building APIs in PHP, especially if we're talking just, you know, uh, you know, we're talking kind of like JSON based REST ish APIs. Uh, how's that been going for you? Do you find that like you're fighting the tools ever at all? Or do you find that you can kind of do things the way you want? I know any of the Rails work that I've ever done, as much as I love Ruby and I love Rails, I feel like there's a lot of 
you know, there's a gem for that culture around a lot of things. So it's a lot of trying to piece things together and not a lot of trying to write. Well, I mean, that's probably not fair, but I feel like there's probably a lot of stuff out there that's you can download this thing that gives you like a REST API over active record and it just works automatically and stuff, stuff like that. So how are you kind of doing things and how are you kind of finding it compared to what you were doing with building PHP APIs or Python APIs or whatever in the past? Uh, I think what I what I found the most crazy is that it's exactly the same. Um, I think uh, I've been using Laravel to build PHP APIs for the last year or two, two, three years, whatever. And um, now I've started using Rails to do it. It's exactly the same uh, because of this Rails API functionality. So um, you still have your models, your views, your controllers, roughly. Well, you don't have the views, but you still have your models and your controllers. And then everything goes in a random library source directory where you have these just generic classes that do all the complicated stuff. Um, and you have serializers. So I made Fractal for PHP because I didn't know there was already one called JMS Serializer, but whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mine's mine's a bit different. But uh, So Fractal and Laravel were a great partnership, and that is exactly the same as building stuff with Rails and Active Model Serializer. It just feels exactly the same. You have a serializer class where you list the fields that you want, and you can override them so you can rename things in your database without affecting the output and stuff like that. Um, so when you're using like just basic tools like that, it, it really is exactly the same. Um, I've always tried to steer clear of these kind of auto API in a box things because they always seem just gross. Um, they're fine for trivial uh, trivial APIs. That's not to sound condescending, but like if your API is just a, a web interface for your database, then you can usually say, hey, here's my database, go make an API for it. But if you're doing anything that's not that, which you should be, or you probably are if you're building a complex app, then these these tools don't work very well. And things like Grape kind of scare me. And and um, yeah, PHP and Ruby both have them, and they're they're all pretty bad. So you're talking about tools like Fractal that you build and how active model serializers work. Do you mind kind of going into a little bit more detail about like are you tied to creating one representation of you know an active record model that you transform that into what you want that to look like coming out of the api or do you have a lot more flexibility as far as being able to maybe tie two active record models into one you know api resource that uh the consumer sees like how much flexibility do you have there and how do these things work and what are the benefits that you get from working with them um trying to work out what the best place to start with this stuff so a, a serializer is just like um just imagine like an array map, just like here is some data going in and this thing is going to represent the data. So you can tie it very much so that um, one trip, we have the trip serializer, which is used for the trip model um, or like a, a ride or a vehicle, whatever. So a, a good a good example, I know I usually hate it when people use users as an example of APIs, like that's the only thing you ever do. But um, we have drivers and passengers and they're both a user. And if we wanted to have different data for a driver and a passenger, we'd have a driver serializer and a passenger serializer. Um, and that would both be maybe sitting on top of the user model, right? So a different serializer can represent the same data in a different way. Um, but it's just kind of like a, a view file. Like Think of serializers as views for your JSON as opposed to views for your HTML, you know? Yeah, cool. One thing I wanted to talk to you about a little bit that was something that helped me a lot when I was first getting into building APIs was trying to figure out the best way to you know, separate your thinking as far as what you're exposing through the API versus how things are stored in the database. I know I've run into situations in the past where I've been really tempted to add some sort of weird, like non restful action to an endpoint because I wasn't creating, reading, updating, or deleting anything in the database. I was maybe uh, flipping some Boolean flag on something that maybe represented like 
you know, a shipping an order or something. You have like orders slash five slash ship and you send a post request to that or something. Is that a something you see people struggle with a lot? And what, you know, what sort of advice could you give to someone who's trying to figure out uh, the best way to design something that's going to allow them to expose a proper constrained REST API that doesn't have all these opportunities for just introducing random actions. Because I feel like as soon as you start allowing yourself to like deviate too much, you can turn things into a real big mess. I feel like having that constraint where it's like, how can I represent this as either, you know, retrieving some data, pushing some new data in there, updating some existing data or removing some data. When you have those constraints kind of controlling your design, it helps you keep things from spiraling out of control. At least that's how I feel. I don't know. What do you think about that? Right. Um, I think that's a common problem. It's a really common problem. Um, one of When you first start making an API, you, you do start to think of it as crud, and that's just how you've been taught. Like Everything we do as PHP developers half the time is like, we're going to make an admin panel. Okay, well, there, here's the index page, here's the create page, here's the update, the delete, and that's that's how everything works. But that's really not what an API is meant to be, um, especially if you're trying to be RESTful, which I don't care about too much. But the the idea is that you just you represent data. Um, you, you, you send it some data, and then you have some back. And the sort of getting and the and the retrieving and the sending should be roughly the same. So, uh, one one good example of someone really struggling to fit these kind of RESTful API ideas into a a more complicated use case was sending messages. They were a uh, um, kind of like Twilio, but for South uh, South America, That's <laughs> South American Twilio, whatever. And uh, they wanted to send a whole bunch of messages. Now, they were thinking in the way of building a, a CRUD API. So they were saying, okay, we want to send a message. We have to make an endpoint where we just, you know, call it, uh, we create a new message. So we send it one, and then that's the message sent. But then they realized that they had to send like a thousand in a batch. And sending a thousand uh, separate requests would be like DDoSing their server, especially if they have millions of customers doing millions of things. So uh, that was a bit of a confusing one for them until I just said, well, just make it a collection. You can send a collection just as much as you can send one single item. So they just send a whole bunch of them instead of, you know, and then it actually comes back to them in the same way. So when they get a collection of messages they've sent, it looks exactly like the one they, they sent to the API in the first place. Um, so part of it is about stop thinking about, you know, create, edit and delete and stuff. Um, the other part is try and use more than just uh, get, post, put and delete. Uh, patch is a bit of a complicated one, but in the instance you used earlier where you said, I'm just trying to flip a Boolean, that is a great example of using patch. Patch by itself, you can be really lazy with it and just send a JSON, which has like status true, and you just send that one field, and then it will just, you know, override that one thing. Uh, If you want to get a little bit more advanced, then you can use the JSON, uh, you can use the the patch RFC. I think it's called the JSON patch RFC. Um, But it is a specification built by Mark Nottingham. And the idea is that you, you send in an array of actions. Yeah, so you say, I want this. to, yeah. yeah, I want to increment that field by one. I want to remove uh, this value. I want to replace the value with this or, or whatever. And that's really good for statuses because if you, if you try and send the entire JSON file from, from somebody's mobile phone and then, you know, trying to update the other from someone's computer and you're just mashing them at each other, you're going to override data that you didn't expect to override. So just sending that one field will really help. Um, but yeah, you've got to get away from thinking that it's, it's crud because API should not be crud. It's interesting that you bring up like the, the patch thing with that, uh, you know, that patch RFC or whatever that you're talking about. Cause, uh, for this API that I've been working on for the last couple of weeks, we decided to just try and follow that JSON API standard. It's like JSONAPI.org or whatever. And it's been kind of in flux and changing quite a bit, especially recently as they're trying to close in on, on 1.0. But 
up until a few weeks ago for updating resources, uh, the only recommendation in the standard was patch using you know, the more complicated version that you were kind of talking about there, where you're sending an array of actions and you're saying what the operation is, what the field you're operating on and what the thing, you know, what the arguments to that operation are or whatever. And um, they ended up like replacing that now with the previous kind of version that you talked about where you can just send a partial representation of the resource and it'll just replace like whatever fields uh, you're putting there. Have you do you have much experience with this JSON API thing? Like, have you looked through it much or tried to implement it on anything? I always used to hate JSON API with a flaming passion for like a really long time. Yeah. Um, it was always a bit weird for me. I've always preferred to embed my data, and which is why I ended up building Fractal in, in the way that you'd have, just like Facebook and I guess Twitter do, where you can kind of embed relationships inside the representations and, and, and do things that way. And JSON API enforces... Um, it enforces side loading, which yeah. has always just been a headache to me. But I, I, I've been forced to use JSON API because it was an implementation choice by Ride and the rest of the API team before I got there. So I, I was very begrudging about it at first, and I kind of complained about it multiple times. That We've reported a few bugs and, and problems back to them, which we've uh, mostly solved now. So we have been kind of helping instead of just complaining about stuff. Sure. But um, the more I use it, I, I think... I've been working for the company for six months, so I've been working with JSON API for six months. The first two months, I hated it even more than I ever had bef before because I was closer to it. Um, for the next, you know, two or three months, I, I came to sort of feel like I understood it a little bit more and like we were kind of getting past our differences. Um, and, and recently, I think I hated it again, but it's... <laughs> I would say that using JSON API is better than making up your own thing. And yeah, it's yeah. and it's better than a lot of the other ones, like Siren and How and stuff are all a bit weird. So it, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. How do you feel about it? I think I'm in the same boat, kind of right. Where I like the idea of a standard because it's one less decision that I have to make. So even if there's like a couple things I don't agree with, it's probably better to just follow it because there's going to be tooling uh, around it. I can focus more on the problems that I'm actually trying to solve. If I'm trying to think of a way to do some particular thing, I can just go there and see if there's an example of how someone else has done it or, or how they recommend to do it. And it's just like, okay, I'm just going to do it that way. I'm going to figure out a way to make that work because, you know, if everyone's doing everything the same way, it's easier for everyone to have conversations about things. It's easier to leverage solutions that other people come up with. It's the same as choosing like a coding standard, right? Like in the PHP world, I didn't like PSR2 when I first started writing code. I wanted to have, you know, my braces on a new line or whatever, but it doesn't matter. Um, you just start using it. And now I love the way my code looks using that standard. But the best thing about it was just, it was, I'd rather just follow a standard and have everyone do the same thing than do what I think is best for me and have no one else, you know, writing things in a way where we can leverage each other's uh, experience and, and stuff like that. So I think the other thing that has kind of bugged me about JSON API, which, you know, it's not even at 1.0 and they're trying to get it out there. So things have been changing a lot recently, but we're building an API for a mobile app and we're in a position where it's not too bad because it hasn't actually been like released publicly yet. But um, the release cycle on a mobile app is a lot slower than it is on a web app, right? So if you're trying to follow the standard and they introduce some breaking change, which they did recently, um, where they switched from the top level 
resource identifier being the name of the resource followed by the data for the resource to now just a data identifier and you have like a type key inside it that says what the resource is, right? That's a significant change to what your API is going to be sending back. And when you're building something for an iPhone app or whatever, if that's already out in the wild, it's really hard to now update that to follow the new standard uh, without having to worry about API versioning and stuff like that, which is just a the scariest thing that I can think of to try and support. Um, so I'm I don't only, know. Did that... I've only just noticed that change now that you, you said it. I've got. I'm looking at the JasonAPI.org, and we've we've got it the old-fashioned way, and I, and we're not changing it for the next couple of months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so that there was that change. Um, the other thing that kind of bothered me about that change, which probably isn't a big deal, is you're forced to have you know your ID key and your type key as uh, you know keys inside that data uh, resource, and it's kind of unfortunate that they chose type as one of them, I think, because that's it's really easy to run into collisions with that. And we had a collision as soon as it, it showed up. We were already using that uh, for something. So we had to you know, prefix ours with whatever it was. So say we had like uh, an uploads table that had a type column. Now we have to you know, alias that to be upload type when we send it back, even though the resource is already an upload just to avoid collisions like that. So it kind of sucks to have um, them kind of stomping over what keys you can choose for things. But yeah, changing that entire resource representation was like a massive change. So it's funny that you didn't know about that till now, but like, how, how do you guys, you know, solve something like that? Or how would you even work around it to, to update? Because I guess is Ride a mobile thing too? Yeah, we've got iOS and, and mobile web version and everything else. Um, <laughs> well, the, the reason why we haven't noticed that is that we've got our version of JSON API support that's kind of a experimental feature that we've been working on for, for Rails itself. But we've been like mad dash trying to launch. We actually had our, our we demoed the product to our CEO today and uh, and she liked it. So we're actually going live to the company tomorrow and then actually to the rest of the world fairly soon. So we've not been keeping up on JSON API changes. Sure. Um, this This is really annoying. And what we'll do is we'll simply just not, implement the change um what what will be interesting actually one of the things i was going to say before that and i'll loop back to, to this is um one of the things i do like or did until 10 minutes ago like about <laughs> json api is that because uh because ember js and rails are really kind of rallying around it as the one true way to represent your data in json um while it might not be the best in the world and same reason psr2 might not be the best in the world it is good when everyone implements the same thing because you have to think less about it um, but the problem now that I've just realized is that if the next version of Rails wants to implement the next version of JSON API, then we're just going to insta-break our everything as soon as we upgrade, or we're going to, <laughs> we're going to have to be held back on a, on a lower version of, um, of Rails until we get our APIs updated. So I would say that version one, eh, I don't imagine they're just going to roll this out in a minor update. So we can keep version one of our API on whatever minor version of, of Rails we're on right now. Um, if updates happen, and to be honest, we might just be able to um, use a different branch of Active Model Serializer. I don't imagine this is going to be a Rails thing, but uh, version one will just keep on roughly the same version of the software. And then version two, we'll explain, is going to use the latest version of JSON API and roll it out like that so that the next, the next, major, build of the, um, the next major build of the iPhone app will just look at a different version of the API and we just switch which version of JSON API we use. But that's still a bit of a pain in the backside, to be honest. I'm not too impressed with that change. 
I mean, I th- I kind of think it is a better change. Uh, I think I like how it turned out, but it is a drastic change from what it was before, especially when it was like closing in on 1.0 and then they changed the entire format. It's like, oh, come on. So, a lot of surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, do you guys only have one version of your API so far or you're already supporting multiple versions? Yeah, so far we just have the one. Um, I've been racking my brain about how to handle version management for our new architecture um, a lot over the last couple of days because we've just been madly panicking, focusing on getting the API to work before we're worried about two different APIs. But we're all up on Heroku as well. That that presents challenges for me in working out how things are going to play because I, in the past when I'm versioning APIs, I've always used the kind of global version except header approach as opposed to versioning specific resources, which is is a better idea if you can. But I always just have an accept header that gets thrown at Nginx, and then Nginx treats it in much the same way it treats virtual hosts, maps it to a different code path on that server, and then you just have both code bases sat on the same server, and um, and that works perfectly fine. And then if you do decide to use a different programming language and you need it on a different server, you can just map it to a different server. Except headers are a good way to go, but I'm trying to work out how the heck to do that on Heroku, and I haven't, I haven't quite worked it out yet. Yeah, that definitely sounds tricky. I mean, Heroku is awesome because of how simple it is to deploy and get stuff up there, but the reason that it's simple is because they take care of a lot of this sort of configuration stuff for you, and you end up not really being able to change a lot of it, right? Yep. Yeah. So the API versioning thing sucks with the mobile stuff, right? Because if you guys have to change, you know, if you guys want to change the API to you know match the new standard... There's no guarantee that whoever's using the mobile app is going to update to the newest version of the mobile app. So you obviously have to support both versions. And in this case, it's probably not too bad because it's just a cosmetic change really to like the way the data is coming back. But if you had a more drastic change in your API, I've I've always wondered what the best way to handle that is. Like maybe, you know, a lot of reworking of your database schema and on all the stuff that affects things in like a really significant way. And you want to support the an old version of the API that's not even compatible with like your new database schema. Do you end up having to basically de- pour all this development effort into the previous version of the API to make it compatible with your new architecture? Like, is there a better solution to that to be able to maintain support for that sort of thing. And I know a lot of people, you know, they'll deprecate the API or whatever, but when you're supporting mobile clients, you don't really have uh, that option because you can't control when someone's going to upgrade and you don't want to just break the experience for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, versioning is a really, really hard thing. Um, There's a great article by Troy Hunt, which is um, your API versioning is wrong. And it just goes through all the versioning approaches and explains how all of them are crap. But (laughs) whatever you use for your switch, the main problem comes down to, you know, regardless of the switch, put it in the URL, put it in a header, you still at some point have to maintain these two different APIs. Um, The serializer stuff that I mentioned earlier is the biggest, most important part. Um, And as long as you have your code base tested, then it shouldn't matter too much. If you have integration tests that mimic actions that the various different versions of the the mobile apps are going to take, then you can do massive refactors and and it's not quite so dangerous. But what you said is is right. Your choices are don't change stuff (laughs) or change stuff minimally or refactor it and then put work back into the old version of the API. these APIs, like again, one of the big points of REST is, is and hypermedia APIs is that they're meant to last a lifetime. Like they're meant to last for ten years or so, as opposed to what people do with their APIs these days, which is 
I'm doing a two-month freelance contract for someone. I'm just going to fire out an API and it's going to be crap. Well, then we'll just replace it with another one and who cares? Um, so RAD doesn't really work with APIs very well um, unless you want to build it you know, very quickly and knock it out. Make sure you have good test coverage because then if you have to change your data store to Mongo or whatever you're doing, then at least you have your tests that show that your, your app is going to work with different versions of the API, uh, different versions of the, the app of the iPhone app in different ways, right? Yeah. Yeah, I found um, integration tests, like acceptance layer tests, to be so critical when developing an API versus a web app. Like, I don't really care too much about testing what my view looks like when I'm building just a web application. Um, I care about writing unit tests for critical things and, and whatever. But when it comes to testing things like, oh, make sure that this text appears in the you know, browser or whatever, that's usually like not super critical things. Like you usually just care, like, does the page load? You know, everything's connected in the right way that I at least get a 200 back. It's probably fine, uh, especially because that sort of front end close to the user stuff is the most kind of volatile part of your application, I feel like, right? That's the one that's going to change the most. And if your tests are coupled to, uh, you know, what something's supposed to look like, then you end up having to maintain these tests and update these tests so often that they're not really like buying you a lot. But in the API world, I found, uh, you know, almost like TDDing my APIs through just that outside acceptance layer to be a really uh, effective way to do it. What's your kind of test strategy for APIs at Ride? We definitely do more integration tests than we do unit tests. Um, unit tests are still important. We, I'd say that we're nowhere near 100% coverage. We don't unit we don't unit test our controllers. We don't do um, much of any of that. We do do tests on important um, model methods. So if we're doing and anything not trivial for the models we will test and we test our libraries and classes and whatnot but everything else is uh, integration test because when you're when you're just doing a, an api endpoint you're just calling a url and saying does this does this exact data come back or does this many things come back it's exactly the same as a unit test for a, a model you know yeah. it's um it's just like a little bit higher level of abstraction really you just forget yeah, about much. what's behind that http call and just make sure it comes out the same yeah, well, with a unit test, the whole point is um, you're talking to a, uh, a PHP or a Ruby API, right? You're saying, here's, here's the method, which is the same as an endpoint. Here are some arguments. So I expect this error or this error to come back. An API is exactly that. It just happens to be going via HTTP. So it's exactly the same as a unit test. And that's why I, I care a little bit less about the actual unit tests in the code for an API than I do about does this endpoint work in the way I expect it to? Because as long as you have, as long as unit tests cover pretty much everything that could happen, um, most of the time the unit tests are then less important. Like if if I can integration test everything that the iPhone's trying to do and it works in the same way, whether I throw these arbitrary values into this method that I'm not even using at the moment is is way less important. You know? Yeah, and I mean the argument normally is that you can't get full coverage with integration tests because there's so many possible code paths because you're at such a high level of abstraction that the amount of tests that you'd have to write to cover everything is just absolutely ridiculous, right? But I found in practice that that hasn't been too bad, really, with APIs for the most part. Like, you can cover most of the situations that you're that you're worried about and error conditions and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, there's definitely situations that you're not testing, you know, but the, that's the same with everything. You know, what happens when I ask for uh, five resources. What happens when I ask for six? What happens when I ask for seven? You know what I mean? It, you yeah. could go ad nauseum forever. So you kind of just have to decide, uh, is this convincing enough for me that this is going to work? And should there be some bizarre reason that requesting 41 
uh, causes an error, but 40 is fine and 42 breaks, then you add the test for 41 when you need to add the test, right? So I don't know. I don't worry about it too much, but it is easier to write those integration tests for an API because of the fact that you have to kind of define what's coming back as stable versus when you're writing acceptance tests or integration tests for a web app where you're not really saying, oh, this user interface can never change. Uh, we need to make sure our users can trust that they're always going to get the same user. Interface. <laughs> you're working the exact opposite way on the web, right? You're, you're trying to make changes all the time and optimize the experience based on whatever. With an API, you're not trying to, oh, well, you know, it turns out we get more conversions if our API keys are flipped in this order or whatever. It doesn't matter, right? You want to design it and have it kind of solidified uh, and then be able to test against it because your clients, like your mobile clients and your web clients or whatever, need to be able to trust that this is a protocol that they can adhere to and, and things are going to stay the same. Yeah. I mean, you definitely can't cover everything with integration tests and you, you have no real way of knowing if you are or not. But what you said is right. Like you just try and write as many as you can. You at least try and write as many requests, as many tests as you can that mimic the interactions that the iPhone's making for a start. That's just a good way to start things off. Um, and then what you'll find is if you've got something like Airbrake set up that reports errors back to you, yeah. then yeah. instead of having a, a nice 401, 422, whatever it is, come back in a certain specific instance, you're going to get a 500. Um, and that's fine a lot of the time. Like You don't always want your APIs returning 500s in the case of, of actual errors. But in the case, either way, like if your iPhone developer is building something or your, you know, your developers are building something and they say, hey, this is broken and you get a little error back saying this thing didn't work as you expected it to, you go, oh, okay, cool, I'll, I'll make a proper error for that. So that then you get the proper 422 instead of a 500. And, and that's how I found that the process goes. If I was building a public API where I expected like thousands of developers to be using it, then I would put a lot more effort into unit testing the crap out of everything and, and you know, building a lot more tests proactively. But um, some of the ones we've had, uh, if you sent a f there was some boolean string like is following true false if you sent a string to that in, in the um, old API I was working on if you send a string to that field it would completely blow up and cause some really weird side effect there's no way in the world I was going to write that test beforehand but as soon as I got that 500 through I went oh that's pretty bad and then I, I, patched, I patched the code and released that test and now it will never happen again but I, I won't know if it's going to happen beforehand you know yeah so uh, how what are you using to test your APIs like I'm mostly writing tests in, you know, PHP to test my APIs, but we also kind of maintain a collection of, um, you know, like Postman, uh, a Postman collection or stuff in PAW or whatever to be able to develop uh, against that stuff. But what are you guys using? Are you just testing stuff with like RSpec and Capybara or whatever, or do you, are you using specific tools like Postman or, or PAW and creating these collections that you're somehow running in an automated way? Or what, what's your strategy for that? <laughs> See all of the above. Um, we, we have a few different tools and I'm, I've been pretty proud of our testing approach so far. We use uh, mini test. We do our integration tests and our unit tests through mini test. Um, that was some decision that was made before I got there cause it's rails and I don't know anything about it there really. Yeah. Um, but that, that works out pretty well. And we've got like, there's action dispatch stuff. It's essentially our integration tests are the equivalent of using guzzle in PHP unit for, you know, PHP developers. And that's actually... I kind of frowned upon that in the past, but I think if I was to go back and do another PHP API, I would end up just, you know, using, making a, a, a test suite called integration and using Guzzle and PHP unit. I'd probably make a few wrapper helper functions, but sure, yeah. you just want to be able to say, um, here is, here is some data I'm going to throw at you. Here is the endpoint I'm hitting. 
and I expect this exact response or I expect this many responses. That's all you have to do. Um, the only other stuff there is uh, that's important is in Rails mini test, they have the whole fixtures and, and those things are really cool where you can say, I'm going to work with one of these, one of these and one of those, uh, start off a transaction, throw them into the database, see if this comes back, then roll the, the transaction back so that each one of your unit tests is completely cut off. Because um, in, in PHP, I was using Behat and that yeah. I, I kind of made my own feature context, same as Cucumber, whatever. I build that and it, the whole test suite would affect everything the whole way through. So like whichever, it had to run in order and all the tests yeah, yeah. would just crap each other up and it was really bad. So um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with mini test and, and fixtures and that sort of stuff. Um, but we actually have some other testing stuff too. I, I use Postman. We have a shared uh, collection, which I don't think that many other developers actually use. Um, I tried the testing in that, but I didn't like it very much. And we have Dread, which tests our API documentation is correct. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at Dread, but it's really awesome. Yeah, I haven't. So what's Dread all about? Uh, so Dread is, you know, API re and API Blueprint and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I played with them a little bit, but I never really got super deep into any of them. We were looking at those options when we were trying to document our API, and it's pretty small. So we honestly ended up just like throwing in the towel and making a GitHub wiki and maintaining it there. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, I, we got pretty close to doing it that way ourselves. And I know a lot of people that just use Postman as, as documentation and say that'll do, it's close enough. Um, API, API RE is a hosted uh, service for developers which allows you to make API documentation and a, and a mock server and all these really cool things. It's got Traffic Inspector. Um, it allows you to make documentation for an API which is based on API Blueprint syntax. So you can, you can use API Blueprint by itself or put it on API RE or whatever. But if you have an API Blueprint file, then you can run Dread against that file, and it's just kind of a Markdown file that's got um, it's got like headers and, and different tables of data and uh, JSON requests and JSON responses. But it, it goes through; it takes all of those JSON requests and JSON responses, and uh, whenever you kind of document parameters that go in the URL, you put an example parameter in. So user fifty one takes that fifty one, goes off makes the request against the URL you specified with the data that you specified, and then checks that the response you specified is pretty much what you get back. Um, so that not only is an extra layer of integration tests for your API, but it actually makes sure that your documentation is completely correct. Because you can put that API blueprint file in your GitHub repo, you can manage pull requests where if someone adds, uh, if someone changes the output, um, and it, it, they didn't update the documentation, it will actually fail the build so that you know for a fact that your documentation doesn't match what, the, what they've uh, said it does, which is insanely useful for us. That's pretty cool. So how does that work uh, as far as testing each you know, endpoint from a clean slate? Kind of like the problem you talked about when you were trying to do it in PHP where you couldn't wipe the database easily and stuff like that. Like, what does Dread actually run against? Same same problem with Dread, to be honest, but it's le it's become less of an issue. Um, we have a custom uh, DB seed, which puts Dread into a clean slate. And what it will do, you can tell Dread to run things in a certain order. Um, the reason, with unit tests, you want them to run in any order possible, and they should be parallelized, and they could have like different machines running some of the tests and all this stuff. So it's much more important for, for unit tests to be kind of each one's a clean slate, whereas with Dread, less less so. You can tell it to run uh, things in order, so it will do, I think it creates things, and then it, I can't remember, but it's, it's pretty much create, read, update, delete, 
in that order. So it will make a bunch of things, change a bunch of things, then delete a bunch of things. So um, sometimes you do get weird knock-on effects, like you update this one endpoint and or you add a new endpoint. And then because of the JSON API, all the different links, there's one more related piece of data in one of the links. And you have to go through each of your <laughs> documented pages and update that user. But it it's not been a huge problem. It took a while to get it set up, like a month. And then I wrote a, a blog explaining how to do it because no one else had bothered. Um, <laughs> and now I think it would be much easier for other people to use Dread to, to build a non-trivial API and document it. So that's pretty cool. I'll have to check that out for sure. Uh, you mentioned uh, the hypermedia stuff a little bit before. I haven't played around with that too much, but the way I understand it is it's another tool that you can kind of use to make your API clients a little bit more uh, resilient against changes in the API because they can make some of their actions based on dynamic data that's coming back from the API, right? So am I correct in thinking it's like, you know, if I had a post with comments or something, I would send back the links to retrieve those comments when uh, I got it back. So if that endpoint changed, the API client could determine what URL to retrieve it from based on the URL that actually comes back from, you know, the original get request rather than hard coding some convention about uh, where this stuff is supposed to live. I don't know. Do you mind talking a bit more about that and kind of explaining what it is? Because I really am not <laughs> super educated in that department. So Yeah. Um, yeah. Hypermedia controls or HATOs is um, is all about kind of, they define it as like defining state for your, for your API or at least how you handle state. Now, the point of, if you look at the JSON API example, then all over it, they have links. They have um, the links to the self, so you know exactly where it came from. And um, and next and last, things like that for pagination are pretty handy. Um, it also covers relationships. So if you look at uh, right here, they've got a list of posts and they have comments and the link to the comments is over there. And the uh, putting links in basically means that people can discover. Now that always sounds pretty pointless to people. I know a lot of people that said they love REST, but they hate hypermedia. And I, I, again, I don't like to joke about too much with like what's truly restful or not but if you don't have hypermedia controls then it's not a rest api um and the reason that they're pretty cool is that it means that the longevity of your api is drastically increased you can direct people to different places and as long as you're just using the the tag uh, the, the nickname of the url then you can change the url as much as you like um when it comes down to kind of discovering like uh, clients discovering you can do some really cool things so when you have a relationship you can say, here's the URL to this piece of related data. So it could be a post or uh, I'm trying to think of a better one. Whatever. You have a post. Um, and then you can then say, this data is over there. And your client can say, okay, what can I do with this data? And you can just send it an options request. And then it will look at the data. And then based on various statuses or, or your permissions, um, delete. Can, can I delete things? No. Well, delete isn't in the in the deleted uh, it's, it's not in the list of options that you're allowed to do. Uh, so you know that you can um, you can edit it, but you can't delete it or things like that. Or you know that you can patch it. And then that's not very descriptive because you're like, well, how do I know if I can start the trip if, if it's like a related thing? This, they're all going to be car-based today, I'm sorry. Um, okay. But how do I know if I can start the trip? Well, you don't. You'd probably want a field in, in the response that said can start. Um, or But you'd, you'd know that you, you're allowed to patch it and that's a good enough start. So you, you know that you can edit things so that's kind of how controls work it's a bit of a crap example but i think like the way i'm envisioning it in my head which sounds kind of neat is i'm kind of thinking about if you're not using that stuff in your api every kind of request is coming from the same 
sort of position, right? So I'm making a request for something and get it back. I make some decision, I make another request, and it's just back and forth sort of from one place to the API. When I'm thinking about this like hypermedia linking stuff, it's almost like I'm traveling to that endpoint and getting that data. And now I'm in a position where maybe I can go do some other things. It's almost like you're you know, following some path and making different turns and being able to get back to different things. And it's kind of like the API is giving you all the information that you need once you make that first kind of entry point request into the API. And it sounds like that's kind of the, the ultimate goal of that, right? That's, that's exactly it. The idea is that you're meant to be able to use a REST API without any documentation at all. Now, I know that I added, uh, I've explained how documentation works and people do like documentation, but the... Um, uh, theoretically, a client shouldn't ever, a developer who's building with it shouldn't ever need any API documentation because the idea is you go to the API, it lists all the functionality it can do. So you, you, straight from the root, you have a list of links and you can go over there and do these things. Um, and then you get to some other resource and you can go there and do it. It's the difference of, imagine you went to a website and you had there was no navigation links. You just had you had to like download a PDF file that would tell you different links you, that you could type, to type into the type browser. Into the browser yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be completely ludicrous, right? Like no, no one would be able to navigate. So it's exactly the same as browsing around the internet. The internet's one big RESTful API. So you go to a place and it says, "Here's the navigation. Here's the things that you can do. Um, here's some other data." And you know, you click on that page and you go to here's some more things that you can do. You're like, cool, I'll do a different thing now. Um, and that's that's how Hazios is going to work. Yeah. So do you find that uh, is that actually end up being super practical? Like you know, you're saying everyone still needs API documentation, right? The goal is ultimately that you would never need API documentation. You would just need to know what's the one URL that I need to hit the very first time, and then I could kind of figure it out from there. Um, do you have any examples of APIs that people can like take a look at that have successfully pulled this off to the level of, you know, uh, perfection that the kind of goal <laughs> is? I, I genuinely don't know. No one does this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's... <laughs> What's really nice, I think GitHub are probably the closest, but um, the, the first step is, yeah, like adding links so that you can at least go find other things um, and then, you know, making your root exposed uh, options. A lot of people don't bother doing it because it's slow. Um, if, you, if you're building an API that's going to be used internally by two or three different teams, so we've got the iPhone, the web, and the, um, and the Android or whatever, if, if, you, if you think about the, the speed of... It's much quicker if you don't have to do this extra HTTP requests, right? If you think about what I was describing earlier, where you have a relationship, you make an options request to go and see what it is, and you go and do that. It also means you have to wait for responses before you can do your next action. So if you're uploading a video, you have to wait for that response to know that the next endpoint that you hit is over there, which can be quite slow. Um, and if you, especially if you have to go and hit the options header and then wait for that to come back and then go and make your request, that's, that's three requests when it could have been two. So it's not a bad idea. It's a really good idea for the sake of um, long living APIs and for, you know, not needing documentation and for getting people going quicker. But it does have a slight performance hit that you pay for that flexibility. And a lot of people just don't see the benefit. Because so many people are building these short-lived APIs, they're they're knocking them out, they're knocking them out, they're hoping that their startup's going to be sold in six months. They don't give a crap. Like <laughs> it's that whole mindset of rapid application development and agile stuff that just means that no one bothers. And I, we don't. Our, the right API doesn't have any hypermedia controls at all. Uh, none. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where people probably see the benefit, but does the benefit outweigh the cost that's going to be put into it, especially when it's something that not a ton of people have done 
really successfully that you can lean on kind of their experiences and reuse some uh, work that people have put into other stuff. Uh, but it definitely sounds like a really powerful idea. So it'd be really cool to see us get to that place where we're able to build APIs using that stuff in a more rapid way as maybe it catches on a bit more and the tooling improves and stuff like that. You mentioned um, just as one of your examples, like video uploads. I find uploads are kind of a weird thing to work into an API in general, especially when you're trying to do, you know, JSON in, JSON out sort of thing, because you can't easily transfer file contents over like a JSON API. So what is your strategy for dealing with file uploads over an API? Uh, This is a a thing that has loads of different approaches. A lot of people try and do uh, multi-type, which I, I don't really like that at all. Um, So they send like a bit of JSON along with an image and, it's kind of a browsery hack thing. It's not really something I like to do with my APIs. So um, there are two approaches, and you don't have to do one of them. You can do both. I'm actually working on an endpoint that does both right now. And one approach is to say, here is a blob of JSON, and uh, this is a URL that links, to, you know, and we're going to download that image. Uh, the other option is to say content type equals image slash PNG. And the HTTP body itself is actually the raw data for the PNG file. Um, so I implemented it that way first for our API. So when you're uploading an avatar for a user, it will accept PNG or JPEG. And depending on the content type, it reads the image in, shoves it off to S3 as long as it's not a hacky file. Um, That was fine for the iPhone users because obviously they can download things and upload them or they can pull them from your photo library or they can do whatever. But the the web team were pretty annoyed with that solution because they don't have any way of like downloading. If, If you look at your Twitter image, for example, uh, if they like pull that out and then get it down, they've just got a URL and they have no way of kind of downloading that and uploading it without making some server-side shit. So they, they didn't like that approach. So I've actually uh, started working on the, the JSON representation for that as well. So you can either send JSON or you can send an actual image directly to the server and they both work just as well. Yeah, so it's interesting because the one app that we're working on, the API that we're working on, we needed to upload really large videos, not really large videos, but say like 100 to 120 meg videos. Um, so, you know, we're kind of doing it iteratively and, you know, what's the quickest thing that we can do for this first stage and improve on it later? And the first thing that we ended up doing was deviating from, you know, our regular API standards that we were following and just making a post request that contained the file contents to, you know, an endpoint with the ID of the upload that you wanted to put in there because they were known like uh, alias string IDs, basically. So everyone has, you know, one of this particular type of video. So it's just like, it's a post request, which is not really what it's supposed to be because you're putting it to a specific ID or whatever, right, uh, with the contents. But we ran into a bunch of, obviously, issues with, just trying to transfer a big file like that. There's all sorts of things that could go wrong. And just today, we kind of worked on a more robust implementation of that. And what we ended up doing was, based on some research on how like YouTube handles it and Vimeo and some of these other services, you make like a JSON uh, post request to one endpoint that kind of has metadata about the thing that you want to upload, uh, anything that you need to pass it along. And the response that comes back contains like a, basically an expiring URL almost. That's where you should start sending the file contents to, to do the upload. And we have it set up to accept like a content range header and it's, you send the file in chunks and then we concatenate it together at the end of the day. So we're accepting only like, you know, one meg files or three meg files or something at a time. So you have much less chance of things going wrong and then concatenate it together and then 
dumping up to rack space or whatever. And that's seems to be working pretty good. But um, what do you think of that solution to that problem? Is there any other strategies that people use for that sort of thing? No, I mean, I've, I've done it that way before as well. Um, the kind of the two part approach. Uh, I haven't done anything with massive video, so I haven't had the problem, but I, I know people have, uh, it, it's the whole approach of not trying to put everything into your API. You know, sometimes other little services sat on the side might be a, a better fit. So much like what, um, much like what YouTube are doing there, they've got the main API where you send the JSON data on one request and then they have a little location header that says, here's where you should upload the, the video. That could be just some other little, you know, Node.js or whatever, Go, yeah. um, which would just open up a, a socket or a stream and then you just start pushing data in there or you, you, you know, you send small little pieces, whatever. But um, yeah, definitely a service sat next to your API is probably gonna be much better that just focuses purely on handling really large uploads and then your API just accepts the data around it because Otherwise, you're just like battering your API. And when yeah, you're just yeah. kind of fighting the tool that you're using, kind of a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. So, what else do you want to talk about? What are you interested in right now? What are you excited about or fired up about? You got a lot of opinions. <laughs> um, my book? No, I don't know. I've got a, I've got a print version of my book coming out, okay. which is fun. Okay. I've uh, I, I was sat in, I'm currently in Brooklyn. I live in Williamsburg, which is where all the hipsters are. And uh, earlier today, I was sat in a coffee shop with my editor. <laughs> and I was like, this is one of the most hipster things I've ever done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, I got a friend of mine to, to help me out kind of fixing the grammar and the spelling because uh, there, there was this great review on SitePoint saying like, four out of five, he clearly knows what he's talking about, but he can't spell to save his life. Um, so I, I lost a point there. So I've got an, I got an editor and uh, we're using CreateSpace to, to get it all up on up on Amazon and stuff. So that's cool. pretty fun. So before we talk any more about that, we should probably just say what this book even is. Uh, and not assume everyone knows, but yeah, you have a book that you put out on LeanPub, right? Called uh, Building APIs You Won't Hate, I think. Is yes. That the title? So I, the I actually bought that like right when it came out. And it's something that I go back to all the time and check out different sections for different things as I run into different problems. And it's been a really good resource that covers a lot of different strategies for a lot of different things and a lot of recommendations about doing things too. So as much as it's, you know, introducing you to there's you can do this this way, this way, this way, or this way. Sometimes that's kind of rough, right? Because then it's still, well, which one am I supposed to use? There's all these different options. And you do a good job of introducing all the different, uh, you know, options for different ways you can do things, but still kind of suggesting, you know, I would probably do it this way. And these are the reasons. And, you know, it's been it's been really awesome read. So that's cool that you're getting a print version out. Mm. Yeah, um, that I mostly just said that as well because I couldn't think of anything else I was excited about. But uh, why not? Why not pimp my stuff if I can? So that's uh, <laughs> that's going out like that's going to be totally separate from how it's put up on LeanPub and stuff, right? LeanPub, can you do physical stuff through them at all, or is it only no? LeanPub do actually help you out, and they don't try and stop you or complain at all. Um, LeanPub offer a print version, so you can actually go in, into the into their website and export a PDF version of of what they've built from your Markdown. So. Um, yeah, I use I do everything through LeanPub originally. It's all is marked down, and then push it up to them. They turn it into a PDF. I throw that PDF into CreateSpace or Lulu, but I don't like them too much. Um, put it into CreateSpace, and then they just build it for you, and you get an ISBN. And uh, I, I I always go by Phil Sturgeon. Always have done as long as I can remember. Um, but I wanted to kind of joke around and be a professional author, so I know Philip J Sturgeon, uh, which is <laughs> awesome. great. There was there was some some study done on uh, basically which uh, what people think is more intelligent and uh, you will notice that a lot of authors have a, a middle middle initial 
initial, yeah. Uh, so basically, short version of the name and a surname, not very intelligent. Full version, fairly intelligent. One initial is like the th uh, the second best, and then if you can get two initials in there, then you're clearly a genius. <laughs> so George R R Martin, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, was... you're right. You're right. I could see that. So CreateSpace is that just like a self publishing platform, basically? Yeah, and they give you little previews of what your book will look like, and uh, they can you can choose sizes and colors and everything else. They throw it in Barnes and Noble and a bunch of other places, oh, really? and really? so you can yeah, go to a you... store and buy it, not just from Amazon or whatever. <laughs> Theoretically, if, 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 if should they choose to stock it, yeah, I if, suppose. if sales go well, which I doubt they will, <laughs> then you can probably walk into one shop in somewhere. <laughs> but that'll be interesting. Maybe someone can open up like a self-published php api bookstore and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be like my book and like that one by matt frost that talks about oauth and something else <laughs> um no the other thing i was fairly excited about have you been looking at raml no what is that okay raml is a alternative to api blueprint but it's it's yaml based instead of markdown based so i'm not entirely sure how i feel about it i've, I've had Learn Raml on my to-do list since November 2014. So it's uh, <laughs> it, it's a pretty cool looking system. But, and this um, is for generating documentation as well. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of just type in your query parameters and your description and your IDs and the various different bits of JSON and everything else, and it will just build documentation for you. It looks so, kind of. I mean, I'm just kind of looking at the quick example on their homepage here. And not looking in too much detail, but it seems pretty straightforward. I know when I was trying to work with the API Blueprint stuff, it felt complicated, to be honest with you, trying to kind of shoehorn all this information into a markdown-ish format with some of their, you know, extra markdown e-tags that they have to add to do things in a certain way. And uh, this seems a little leaner. So this is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, the API, re, uh, API Blueprint file we have for Ride is... 2,676 lines long. So <laughs> as you can probably imagine, that occasionally leads to some conflicts when we're editing stuff. And, it's, and what, uh, what's the size of your API, like as far as, um, you know, like number of endpoints maybe is a good way to uh, ish? Let's have, a, let's have a quick look. We've got 20 controllers, so times that by four. Yeah, we've got about 100 endpoints we're doing. Wait, that's not, that's not maths. <laughs> 20 times by four. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Oh, yeah. you round up. You got to make it sound more impressive. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, this is the first time I tried doing a podcast sober. So clearly I need to have some more whiskey and I'll be able to do math again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know what else is going on. Anything else you can think of? Uh, apart from my turtle. No, not at the minute. I mean, we're, we're, we're focusing pretty hard on getting things, uh, getting things launched. So, so uh, yeah, there's been, I don't know. Have you, have you been building APIs with rails? What, I can't remember what you said. You I were haven't using. built APIs with rails. No. Um, just with Wirevel mostly. Hmm. Oh, I hate you've been doing a lot of Go though. No, no Go. No, not oh, me. No. Someone else. I've looked at it a little bit. Um, it seems like a cool language. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit. Maybe you can give me the pitch. Like, what do you like about Go? Um, <laughs> it's very, very strict on the types there, which is a conversation we were having the other day. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, interesting. That sounds like something I really, really deeply want in my language <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean i so actually we did say that we were going to talk about types um, at some point and, and maybe have a quick quick version now because you have done a whole podcast on it but um what i really enjoy is uh it's it's so weird um having one window open which is ruby where it just doesn't really care about the types at all and you're like oh it responds to that method so we just throw stuff at it and um and that's pretty cool and flexible and you can build things really quickly and then on the other hand you've got this uh this application which is insanely insanely type strict 
and um, like you 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 have uh, a, an actual implementation of it, an instance of something compared to a reference, and it freaks out at you. Um, so it's it's that it's that tight that it cares whether it's a you know a physical one or not. Um, and it, it does take a bit of a load on your brain to work out like, oh, should I be typing things now? And does it matter? And like a, an array of chars is different to a string and all this yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, other random yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, it's, 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 what's it meant to be? Like the way I understand it, it's almost like a modern alternative to C or something, right? Like it's meant for high performance stuff. It's fairly low level but it also sounds like it's got a lot of like abstractions built in to do really cool stuff with it like correct me if i'm wrong i was talking to someone about um how you build like a web app in go and they said like the coolest thing about building a web app in go is when you're done you just compile it and then you just run the binary on the command line and that's like your app that's your server yeah. that's everything it's like listing on the <laughs> so is that how you're actually doing it like in production for this like autocomplete service i think you said or yeah, is absolutely. it is it sitting behind like a real web server and stuff too, or is it literally just that listens on a port? And, it's just that, man. That's yeah, it's just cool. that. So there's not I mean, even nginx in front of it or like anything. Nope, no, wow. none of that. Um, you do. It is a very basic uh, web server. Unlike PHP, it's not just meant to be like a development web server. You know, because PHP you can run that server, and if you do that on production, you're just asking for trouble. You're an idiot. But uh, no, with Go, literally, you just compile it, and and that's it. You just run it. And it will listen on whatever port you tell it to, and it has it has quite a lot of functionality. You can use HTTPS and everything else. So, um, I think my my biggest what I really like about Go is coming from the PHP world, where the standard library is a little bit inconsistent, we could say, <laughs> um, or wildly moronic. Um, it's just kind of <laughs> one of one of the two, whichever one you want to say. Um, PHP has no consistency across the standard language, really, and Go has been built in such a way uh, that it's it's just the standard library is beautiful. Uh, working with MD5 and, and then changing it to you know SHA1 is it, the whole thing's exactly the same. It's all exactly the, and it's really consistent and really nice. Um, so that has been a, a big selling point for me. Um, being able to run things without needing nginx that's another uh, a big benefit. Um, it, it is really quick. Like you'd think that this kind of crappy web server doesn't do that much. It's going to be quite slow. It's much quicker than nginx by my tests, and in, in most cases it's it's quicker. Um, so that's those are two of the cool like selling points. The other major selling point is that you don't, in PHP and pretty much in Ruby, but there are kind of threads, if you want to do stuff asynchronously, you usually have to go via a worker. You have to use Rescue or Beanstalk or whatever. Um, same, same in PHP, you, have to, you can use all the same tools, but um, this actually has asynchronous stuff built into the language itself. So um, you can't be blocking, bro, never be blocking. You just like, <laughs> you, make, you make these little subroutines where they're just like fire and forget and you have a for loop and normally in PHP you'd have that for loop and you just hope it gets through it as fast as it can um, and if you're doing like a web request um, then you have to like wait for the server to come back and you just sit in there which you know is slow so um, in Go it does as much as it can kind of asynchronously and as soon as it's waiting for something it will go and get on with doing something else and it, it does work out very very well if you can build it that way Is the strategy for building stuff that way similar to how you deal with that stuff in javascript like does go have a concept of you know promises or do you use callbacks or do they have their own kind of strategy for working with they have their own they have their own things go yeah javascript is all about promises and callbacks and like here's the thing you should do when you're ready and um i don't like that so much i guess but with go you have channels so i mentioned they have uh routines uh, routines where you just kind of say go and do that thing and it just does it as soon as it can uh, with channels they're kind of like routines but they actually um, you pass the channel 
you define a new channel and you actually pass it into the uh, function or method or whatever as um, as an argument, and then you can kind of put things into that channel. And each, I'm really bad at my words. I never was a computer science person, but um, <laughs> it's kind of like having a for each loop where you kind of add something to the end of the array, but you don't know what order they're going to come back in, right? Because just every single iteration of that function or method that you're running is a routine it all just throws something into there and it could come back in any order and um, that stuff's pretty cool it does mean that you can't use it if you want if order's important but you could i guess you can just kind of get it to build that collection of uh, that, that channel full of data and then sort it afterwards that probably wouldn't be very performant but um yeah it's a great way to to handle asynchronous stuff without having to fire it off to a uh, think about the process otherwise you want to download you want to pass a hundred websites or whatever. You have to, you have to say, okay, here's the loop that's going to initiate these requests. Go off to RabbitMQ, have a worker instance running there. So I probably need Supervisor D running just to keep an eye on on that pro on that process and manage how many workers I have. Um, and then I want uh, to handle failures, so they have to report back to an API or a database or something. Um, and I want to handle successes, so they have to report back to a different endpoint. And then you have all this crap where you could just, you know, have a function and use that function it's it's a really interesting thing so how do you keep track of when everything is done to be able to you know react and do something else once you've parsed all these hundred you know websites in parallel it just continues the execution down so it's it's only in parallel as uh, as much as they're not waiting for each one to happen it, it will try and do them as at the same time as much as possible so just imagine the example of a for loop and you have like echo hello echo, goodbye, and then in, in the middle there's a for loop, right? In yeah. PHP, it's going to have to do one, then two, then three, then four, um, and, in, and do that for 100 times, that's pretty slow. Uh, in Go, it will, if, you, if you're using channels, you're actually waiting for the response back, then what that's going to do is it will do like maybe one and then nine yeah, and then okay. 74. I like, think I get it. So instead <laughs> of a loop order. where you're actually doing it, you know, 100 times, there's basically some construct for saying, I have, you know, this collection of 100 sites that I need to parse, and it's just like, go parse those 100 sites, and it's not going to move on to the next line of code now until they're all parsed, but it's going to be able to do them all at the it's same just, time as much as possible. Yeah, One absolutely. of the other cool things that uh, someone was talking to me about with Go is like, I guess it has this idea of impl implicit interfaces. So something like where you can define an interface, but you can pass something in that's expecting that interface as long as it um, implements that interface, even if it doesn't know itself that it implements that interface like you might define an interface and some third party object or i don't know there's no objects and go right it's like structs and whatever um you know has the same functions available uh and it's not explicitly implementing that interface it's not saying you know yeah i exist to play this role and fulfill this contract but it can like still get passed in because it checks and just says okay well i've defined these three methods and this has those three methods even though it has no idea that i've ever defined this interface and it still works i thought that was kind of a a cool thing i don't know have you ever used that in go or do you get much benefit out of features like that uh not a huge amount but um, i do know that you can pretty much uh shove like a, a json uh marshall onto any object and then throw that into something that expects a json marshaller and it will output the JSON for you. So normally it will like do it in a default way. If you define your own method, it will do it in a, in a custom way. So I guess that's that. Um, I don't know too much about the interface system in there, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's very different from the PHP way, which is probably good in different ways too. So what did you find kind of the hardest 
thing about learning Go to be? I know for me, most of my professional development experience has been with more traditional object-oriented languages like Java or C Sharp or PHP or some Ruby or whatever, where it sounds like Go is a totally different thing, right? There's no objects. There's no inheritance. Like, How did you kind of make that mental switch or what was difficult there or what was cool there? <laughs> it's it's an interesting one because I feel like I learned most of Go in about like four hours, I was, <laughs> which was fun. Um, I was just kind of sat there learning um, and I got most of it done. They have a really simple documentation website where you just go through it and they only have, I think it's somewhere between like 15 and 22 keywords in the whole language, which is tiny. Um, so that, the easiest thing was there isn't that much of it to learn. Uh, channels are the, probably the most complicated thing you're going to run across and kind of, it does get a bit annoying with, with some of the type stuff when uh, you're trying to read a JSON full of mixed bits of data and it, it can get a bit confusing. But um, one of the, well, I guess what the hardest part, the hardest part is I, I heard a great comparison by someone whose name I completely forget. And they said they were making the comparison between Go and Rust because they're the two core new languages that everyone cares about, even though Go's five, even though Go's five years old now. Um, and they were saying that Rust is built on top of uh, 40 years worth of, of uh, language development, learning from the mistakes made by Java and building upon the, the shoulders of, of all these different languages that have come before it, but with a, a modern twist and, a, and, and improvements of their own. And Go just says, fuck all of that. <laughs> We're going to do things this way. They just completely throw 40 years worth of language development out the window and goes, now nah, I've got a better idea. We're going to do it like this, which, <laughs> which is really interesting. So it, it is quite similar to see in some ways. Um, uh, they, the, their documentation does quite often say like, this is, you know, the for loop is like the for loop in C, but without the brackets. So things like that. But Do you have to it, worry it, about memory management and stuff in Go, or is nope. that all handled for you? Yeah. Nah, it's all done for you. Um, I did manage to completely shoot myself in the foot when um, uh, I made I made an Elasticsearch connection on every single request via HTTP. So Pingdom ended up, like, taking my site down. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why have I got a memory leak? This is meant to be magically handled for me. I'm like, oh, because I specifically put it in there. So all I, all I had to do then was move it from inside the, you know, HTTP handler and put it into the init method, and it was fine. But, yeah, it's pretty funny. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to talk about totally different languages because I just picked up um – Kent Beck's small talk, best practice patterns book. And it's got so much awesome information in it, but it's so challenging to understand the syntax because it's so foreign to me because I'm so used to C ish languages, right? Like PHP and Java and C sharp and, you know, stuff where there's curly brackets and stuff where, um, a method is just one string and not cut up into the names of its parameters. Like, cause small talk <laughs> looks kind of like objective C in that way too. And objective C is really hard for me to read in the same way. So it's kind of been fun to, uh, to really realize how different programming can be in a, you know, totally different world. And it sounds like go, I mean, go is, it looks like that traditional kind of C style language for the most part. Right. But, uh, it would be fun to kind of learn something in a, a new paradigm like that. And it sounds like it's kind of unique in that sense. It's not like it's a functional language or anything, but it's just kind of go, right? So yeah. it's pretty cool. It's his own thing, pretty much. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, actually, t- uh, tomorrow is the final day on the RFC for anonymous classes in PHP, um, which is a RFC I've been involved with. And what's pretty cool about um, about being involved with this RFC is that I didn't write any of the code. Um, I have written a bunch of tests for it, and I've been helping out with the RFC, but 
me and Joe Watkins have um, we've tried this before in the past and it didn't work. So it, the, the feature didn't get ended up getting accepted. But we make a fairly good team. Um, he likes to fire out some code and says, "Ah, oh, that'll that'll work," and you know, come up with come up with ideas for things that can be done. But the whole RFC process and getting it through internals and fighting and defending it and working out what else needs to be done in a, in a constructive way when people are just screaming at you, um, that process is not something that he enjoys quite so much. So for, I've decided to use my, my powers of arguing on the internet for, for the better instead. <laughs> yeah. With great power comes great responsibility. Um, so I've, I've become his like, I don't know, like lawyer or his representative yeah, awesome. to, to internals. His and, agent uh, or something. Yeah, agent. That's a much better way. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so now I like, I've added a few more tests. I've, I've improved the examples in the RFC. I've added all these things. But but we're going to have uh, the votes. Pa- uh, it's got like 40 against two. No yeah, it looks like it's looked, winning so. by a huge landslide. So yeah, that's awesome. This is, this is a that. really cool feature, actually. It's very different from uh, a lot of the other stuff that we've been seeing getting into the language lately. So it's kind of cool to see. Um, people introducing totally new things that we didn't have before. Um, I mean, always, it's always good to see improvements and stuff on the stuff that was there before too, but uh, it's really cool to see totally new stuff. Like I started using all the variatic stuff and the argument unpacking in PHP 5.6 recently. And just yesterday was the first time I ran into a situation where it was so obvious how amazing of a cool feature that is and how hard it would have been to solve something. And, or solve that particular problem without it before. So it should open, uh, you know, a lot of new doors for people to be able to do cool things. I'm really excited about kind of the implications this has on creating like super cheap test doubles and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's, that's the first and, and yeah, one of the best, best examples of it is just kind of mocking and, and basic doubles. And one of the, one of the arguments I, I use, which people don't think holds too much weight is that the way that the PHP community has been kind of conditioned and, and um, just, been ground down over time to do it this way is that every class should go in a different file so even the standards like the autoloaders everything expects a different class to be in a different file um and even if you put it like right at the top of your file it's kind of a weird place to have it and it's it gets a bit gross so the ability to have if it's only a small one or two line thing and you don't need to make it into its own class you don't have to you just throw that in there and you can like implement a implement an interface with just three lines of code that are yeah. in a callback somewhere and and not have to do all that stuff so yeah i think it's it's very rarely that php gets a feature that fundamentally changes how you'd approach something um yeah. i don't know if you want to call it fundamentally because it's just moving something from there to there but callbacks were a big one of those as well like callbacks yeah. at the time people were like nah, don't really know whatever and then that allowed apis like laravel um their api uses a lot of uh, their actual PHP API uses a lot of callbacks and it made made for so much nicer interfaces than we've seen in any of the frameworks that it if I say based on Taylor will shout on me but there are clear comparisons to Laravel and uh, to, to Fuel and Codemator before it and Kohana and you look at frameworks like that and they had we'd have these methods that had like four or five arguments in them and they'd just be really really long and complicated or they take this gross huge array of things that you just magically throw in there and hope it works and their APIs were terrible, but then we got callbacks and we realized we could just pass in a block, just, you know, like in, in Ruby and you pass in like a, a, a parameter, like an option argument that would have a few methods on it. And you had this perfectly documented, very clean, concise API that people just didn't think of before. So I hope that loads of things that we can't really imagine right now come out of this for PHP frameworks and different systems. Yeah, it's definitely cool. Uh, is, is there any other RFCs that are still open? I guess 
the closing date for things making it into PHP 7, is that tomorrow? Or basically any vote that's started, right? No new votes can start and no new RFCs can be opened. Yeah, so on March 15th was the feature freeze day and no no more votes can be started. So you can still have small features go in. We'll see a few like random methods added to random classes, but any any sort of big RFC that needs a whole new uh, discussion period and vote isn't going to make it into 7.0. Um, I'm just going to have a quick look on the RFC page to see what's currently in voting. Yeah, I'm looking right now too. There's some things here uh, that... The, there's the in operator. Don't know about that. Yeah, that one didn't... That one's being voted... Oh yeah, it's losing. So, and it probably <laughs> it probably needs a two thirds vote too, right? It would, yeah, yeah. So it's definitely not going to get in. Um, what was the? There was one that recently passed, I think. So it's probably not listed here, but the the one that basically unreserves tons of keywords. I thought that was pretty cool. The concept uh, can't use words. Context sensitive lexicon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been so many, so many times where I've wanted a list function or something, right? Yeah, and yeah. So it'll be pretty cool to be able to, because uh, PHP has a lot of reserved words. And coming back to like what I was talking about with that Smalltalk book, because I've been researching that language a lot just to try and understand the syntax. Smalltalk has six keywords. That's it. Wow. It wow. doesn't even, if isn't even a keyword. There's no uh, conditional constructs. So the way that you do conditionals in Smalltalk is say you have an expression, right? Like X equals Y. Um, that evaluates to an, a Boolean instance, right? Because everything is an object and you call the dot if true method on the Boolean. And that takes a block like you would have in Ruby. And there's a right. dot if false um, as well. So I don't know. That's like a pretty cool way to, uh, to, to think about things. I think it's like everything is an object more than I've ever seen in anything. You can kind of see like some of the influence that it had on, on Ruby, but Ruby is kind of like, yeah, I mean, all that stuff is really cool, but it's it's a lot of people would just like to have an if statement too, so we'll just keep that as well. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's been really cool to look at some of these uh, different approaches to doing stuff. Um, is there anything you wanted to plug or anything before we go? Uh, well, I've already managed to smash the the book reference in, so I think that's that covered. <laughs> yeah. So where can people check out the book? Uh, people can check out the book on apisyouwonthate.com. I've currently got the most ugly, disgusting website up you can possibly imagine. Go there just for that, even if you aren't planning on buying the book. But it's uh, it's got an under construction, like blinking thing on it from the nineties. So uh, that's that's worth checking out. Where can people, uh, you know, keep up with what you're blogging about or what you're interested in? I've got uh, philsturgeon.uk, which is where I blog about web development, APIs, and turtles. Um, <laughs> Um, Phil Sturgeon on Twitter if you want to see me arguing with PHP developers uh, on a daily basis instead of doing any work and uh, you should check out ride.com because we're going to go live fairly soon and it's it's pretty awesome cool man uh, well yeah it's been awesome having you on that was a really cool discussion I wasn't expecting to get into the Go stuff at all but uh, that's that was actually one of the cooler parts of the discussion so I'm excited to look into that a little bit more and play with it a little bit more and kind of expand my horizons so that's really cool uh, yeah, awesome yeah, yeah so thanks man um this has been fun. So show notes for this episode are going to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 13. Yeah, 13. <laughs> and uh, if you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's really helpful. And if you got any ideas for guests or topics or any feedback, uh, hit me up on Twitter or the Full Stack Radio Twitter. And if you want to discuss this episode, there's uh, discuss comments on the Full Stack Radio website. So check it out and get involved there. So there you go. See you next time. Cheers. Bye.